Genesis 1 and 2 tells us about this really good spot that God made for Adam and Eve. It's called the Garden of Eden, or literally, the Garden of Delight. We're not in that anymore. And yet there are people that still imagine that we live in the Garden of Eden. And so you'll hear quotes from them sometime. Do you guys remember uh, Mikhail Gorbachev? Remember him, if you're a little bit older? Leader of the USSR, the last leader of the USSR. Uh, if you followed him after the Berlin Wall crumbled and glasnost and all that stuff that happens, he became a very strong speaker for naturalism. Right? The USSR, communism was atheist. And so he has these quotes that are interesting. I'll read one of them for you. Quote, Gorbachev, nature is my God. Trees are my God, end quote. Who knew Gorbachev worked for Hallmark? <laughs> right? Put that on a card, sell it. It's always interesting to me that when people want to say stuff like that, the trees, the beauty of the forest, it's my God. Nobody's saying, my God is the lion running down the baby wildebeest and pummeling it and then devouring it. Right? No one's saying that side. No one's saying, my God is the fire ants that jump out of the tree and eat my eyeballs out. Nobody's saying that, right? It's always the kind side of nature, never the fang and blood, never that side. It's always mother nature, but we forget that nature can also be a wicked stepmother as well. And we're going to find out why that happens, and it's right here in our story. Here's why. From the garden of delight to disaster. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves one cloth. Here's the fall. And it begins with this serpent that was called crafty. Being crafty is neither good nor bad. Proverbs 1.4 uses his same word as something that we should desire to be. So craftiness is like it's neutral, right? It can be used for good things or it can be used for bad things. There are people that are extremely crafty at bad things, aren't there? You know anyone like that? I talked to this policeman, and his job is a lot of times busting meth labs. He's like, I've gone into meth labs where whoever is running that meth lab and what components they were using and what they had to do to get the whatever, the, the chemicals out that they needed to make meth, he said they would be world-class chemists. If they would just take that same craft... <laughs> that they're doing to make meth and use it in some lab for a pharmaceutical company, they'd be millionaires. They're taking that same craft and then use it for bad things. Bernie Madoff, remember him? He made off with $50 billion in a Ponzi scheme, right? He's crafty at getting people's money. Enron, man, they were crafty at presenting this facade of a company that didn't even exist. So this thing can be good or bad. This serpent is crafty 
and he uses it in a bad way, and this is how. The first thing the serpent does is questions God's word. Did God actually say? If you wanna know when someone's out to get you, when they're being crafty in a bad way, watch them question God's word. So if you follow like Christian news, I tend to, kind of my job. This summer, there was a book that came out. The book was called Good Sex. So that's always gonna sell books. And it was written by a Christian author. And the subtitle was, um, Why Chastity Isn't the Only Option. And so this Christian lady who says she's a believer in Jesus, the entire book was written how, you know what? Premarital sex is not wrong according to the Bible and neither is sex with someone that's not your spouse. That's crafty. That's how you craft a bestseller right there. So there is this way that is very popular today that questions really 2,000 years of pretty solid Bible teaching. And there's a lot of it around right now. If it's, if it's new, it's probably not true. So these people that are putting out these new things they're discovering, I'm, I'm doubtful that they're true. I know that one, that one is not true. And really what you see in chapters one and two, and I've, I've said this a bunch, I'll keep saying it, is God is laying out, I'm good. I will prepare a good place for you. Even if you're lacking something, I will see your lack before you do. And then I will bring and supply your need beyond your possible imagination. That's what chapters one and two are. It's trust me, trust me. So the serpent comes and now begins to undermine this trust. And then Eve, she plays into it. She makes two mistakes. Her two mistakes are number one, she underestimates God's grace. Notice what she says, verse two. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. What did God actually say? If you go back to chapter two, God says, you can freely eat of every tree in the garden, right? The, the, the idea in the Hebrew is actually, Eat till you can't possibly eat anymore. Eat as much as you could possibly imagine. Eat it all. Every tree, go for it. I've said, God, like, God is so generous. Like, there are 7,500 different kinds of apple. You just think about that for a second. Eating one apple a day, a different apple every single day, would take you 20 years just to eat all the different kinds of apples. You don't have to eat a mushy, red delicious. There's a lot better apples out there. That's what God was saying. I generously give you this entire garden full of all these things. But her thing is, yeah, yeah we can eat a, a, an apple here or there. No, you just underestimated God's grace. And then number two, she overstates his rule, right? We're not supposed to eat it. And she adds on this little thing, neither shall you touch it. Did God ever say that? God never said that they were not allowed to touch that tree. What is that called when we add a little bit more to a rule? It's called legalism. And legalism is so dangerous. Churches are notorious for wanting to add a little bit of safety around God's rules. They're notorious for that. I grew up in a church that was unbelievably legalistic. We were told, don't touch the TV. So we were not allowed to have a TV in our house. I was told, look out, Hollywood is there to bend your brain so that you will serve Satan. So we were not allowed to watch movies. I was told, those kind of clothing, you don't wear those kind of clothing. Don't touch those kind of clothes. So we didn't wear those kind of clothes. Holidays, they're all pagan. Easter is pagan, Christmas is pagan, Fourth of July is pagan, Halloween is pagan, Thanksgiving is pagan. Don't celebrate any holidays. We boycotted companies. So maybe if you're old enough, in the 1980s, Procter & Gamble got in trouble because everyone said the profits from Procter & Gamble were going to support the satanic church. Do you remember that if you're old? So our, as a church, we boycotted Procter & Gamble. No Crest toothpaste. 
I did my own boycott. I just said, well, I'm not even brushing my teeth then. Forget it, man. <laughs> Satanic, all of it. Well, it turns out they're a publicly traded company. You can go to Procter & Gamble and figure out where their profits go. And they don't go to the Satanic church. Do you know to this day, Procter & Gamble receives about 300 letters a year asking them if their profits go to the Satanic church. How bad of a witness is that for Christians? That these CEOs or these whoever it is, could be just your average everyday, you know, person receiving the mail has to look through this and, oh, another crazy Christian. Now be careful. Legalism kills. That's the church I grew up in. Here's what amazes me. I can remember 1980 as an eight-year-old in that church, sitting in a seat, tiny little church. Floyd was preaching. And I remember I looked at Floyd, saw him doing that. And I thought, you know what? One day I'll do that. One day I'll sit up there on that stage and I'll look out at a congregation and I will tell them everything they can't do. <laughs> Somehow, even back then I knew this is a really good thing to do. But this legalism side is really bad. So she does two mistakes. She under, underestimates God's grace and then she overstates this rule and it hurts. The serpent wins when we do that. I talked with a foster child at this church a while back. And she grabbed me after a service, she's 16 years old. And she said, I've been in 10 homes since I've been in foster care. I'm in a Christian one right now, they come to your church and that's why I'm here. I would not be here if I didn't have to be here. I said, well, there you have it. What do you have to say right now? She said, here's what I want, you, want to tell you. She goes, living in this Christian home has been the biggest bummer. I said, really, why? She goes, they are not letting me do anything. They won't let me listen to the music I've always listened to. They won't let me celebrate Halloween. She goes, what is wrong with Halloween? Why can't I celebrate Halloween? I've done this my whole life. For 16 years, I've celebrated Halloween. This is the first year I'm not able to celebrate Halloween. And she just went on and on and on like that. It kind of broke my heart. We have to be so careful about where we put the rules and why we put them there. So with my kids, here's what I'm very careful about. I'm very careful to say, this is God's rule and this is Matt Heverly's rule. I'm very careful. House rule, this is just because I'm an idiot or whatever you wanna say. This, I'm not deriving this from a Bible. I'm not gonna proof text it from some crazy verse in Ecclesiastes. I'm not gonna do that to you. I'm just saying, I don't like that. It's not God that doesn't like it. Matt Heverly doesn't like it. I make that very clear to my kids because I want them to always see God as good and generous. And when we forget that little thing there, look out. Then they begin to think that Matt's rules are actually God's rules. And they're not at all. I cannot find the Bible verse that says you can't celebrate Halloween. Now that's an individual choice. If you don't like Halloween, tell your kids that. Man up and say, I don't like Halloween. I don't want you celebrating Halloween. I can't find a Bible verse for it. That doesn't matter. In my house, this is my rule. Fine. Just don't make it God's rule. Because then it becomes legalism. So she here overstates the rule and the enemy wins. Couple notes on this and we'll be done. We've already done two Sunday messages on this text. There's a tree and there are three different opinions about this tree. God's opinion, the serpent has an opinion, and then this beautiful woman has an opinion. I think that's the same thing you see today. <laughs> right? God has an opinion on things. There's a serpent that has an opinion on things. You turn on your television and there's a beautiful woman with a six pack of abs trying to sell you beer. She has an opinion on things, right? That's the way things roll. Here's God's opinion on the tree. That tree is dangerous. Don't eat of it. It will kill you. The serpent's opinion, it's a good tree. Eat it. It'll make you like God. Eve's opinion she agrees, right? She saw the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes that it's gonna make one wise. She agrees with the enemy. There is another opinion about the tree. Perhaps you've heard this in theology that God put the tree there. I call it the divine test. That God put the tree there to see if Adam and Eve would choose him. Have you heard that before? That opinion of the tree is this. It's a, it's a test. The tree's a test. Don't eat it or God will kill you. Have you heard that before? There's a theology in that. I, I read a book. I could name the author. He's very famous. That's the way he puts it. It's a divine test. It's a test tree, right? Don't eat it 
or God will kill you. Does, does the Bible ever say God's gonna kill them if they eat of that tree? No, but you know what? That's in a lot of our brains, that it's actually God that killed Adam and Eve. No, God's saying it's a poisonous tree. If you eat of the poison, that poison's gonna kill you. I'm not killing you. You're eating a tree that's going to kill you, all right? Very, very important to note that. So there's these opinions of it. God never says, I'm gonna kill you if you eat of it. The whole idea that we're supposed to be getting from these chapters is real simple. God's good and he's generous. He wants to create a great place for you. If you trust him, he will bring it to pass. He will supply your every need. And Eve here, she gets a bad rap, but she was actually tempted by a virtue, was she not? I wanna be wise. I wanna be like God. Man, nothing wrong with that, right? That's a really, really good thing to be tempted of. But I'll tell you, virtues are a harder temptation than vice. So let's take two people. One man wants to steal a cinnamon roll because he just wants a sugar rush. The other man wants to steal a loaf of bread because his son is starving to death and he wants to save his son, which is a harder temptation. The man wants to save his son, right? You gotta be very careful because our, our enemy is crafty. He's wily. Pastors, man, I just, th- this, this girl, she's broken, this lady, she's broken. I have compassion on her. I wanna help her out. Ooh, look out, look out. Where does that go so often? Where does that go? We've gotta be so, so careful. And it's from a heart that wants to help and do something good. And yet Satan gets in there because he is so crafty. We have to be wary. That's why Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 5, man, be sober, be vigilant, because your enemy is like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. We're supposed to be armored up and knowing he's going to attack. So it's virtue. And she is isolated, isn't she? And she's individualized. Now, I believe Adam is close to her. Every you you see in this chapter, they're all plural in the Hebrew. But Satan is targeting, he's talking to the woman. If Eve would have just done this, hey, Adam, what do you think about this? Hey, hey God, what do you think about this? We would have a very different story. But she doesn't. It's almost like Satan is saying to her, hey, be a big girl and think for yourself. That's one of the stupidest things you can ever do. Proverbs says, there is wisdom in a multitude of counsel. You and I, we're designed for community. We are supposed to be those that are saying, hey, God, let me pray about this. God, what do you think about this? Hey, good friend. Hey, community group. Hey, what do you think about this? Man, there is safety in that. But Satan always wants to marginalize and individualize us and get us by ourselves. And then we're easy pickings by ourselves. And you're gonna see that if you are reading through the Bible in Deuteronomy, the Amalekites would go after the ones that lagged behind. They got off by themselves. They were stuck behind everybody else. They were no longer in the community of Israel. And those are the ones that were picked off. Stay in community. If you have a question, then ask somebody you trust. It's that simple. So she is taken out. And what you see here is there's a loss of innocence. It's kind of like heartbreaking in a way. They lose the innocence that they had of chapter two where it's beautiful and everything's good and wonderful. And once that innocence is lost, you can't get it back. There's no regaining it. You ever learn something that then from that point on, you can never shake it out of your mind? Like it always kind of, it's there. So I read this study, studies really do this to me, that when somebody lies, if they're right-handed, when somebody lies and they're right-handed, Your eyes, guess what they do? They look up to the left. Right before you're gonna lie, if you're right-handed, you will glance up to the left and then back down. Well, guess what I do to my kids all the time now? (laughs) Yeah, did you take that cookie? And I'll just stare at them, just waiting for that glance up, down. It's like like God put it there, like, here, I'm gonna really get you guys. You can try to lie, I'm gonna get you. So, man, I cannot shake that out of my brain. Now my kids are like, no, dad, I didn't, right? They just cover their face. (laughs) You just lied to me. I know you did. It's like that. Now, from this point on, their eyes are open. They can never reverse the clock. 
but there's good news because something good's gonna come out of this. So verse eight, here's the confrontation. And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool. That word cool there is actually literally ruach. Uh, can be translated cool or spirit or breath or wind. In the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. But Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat. And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. God shows up and it says they heard the sound of him walking in the garden. Does God walk around? Who is this? We'll get to Genesis 18 at some point. In Genesis 18, God shows up again, this time in human form, and he has a meal with Abraham. Who's that? I believe the one walking in the garden right here would be God the Son, the pre-incarnate God the Son. Uh, the Jewish people, commentaries, called the, this character that they see the second Yahweh. Like, you know, they don't have a messianic way of interpreting it like we do. They called it the second Yahweh because there are some like, who is this? Who's walking in the garden? Who shows up to Abraham and has a meal with him? Who wrestles with Jacob, right? Who, who is this one? Well, I think it's God the Son. So they hear him strolling in the garden and they hide, they think they're invisible, they have their camo on, their leaves on, so look, we're hiding, no one can see us, but God sees them. So chapters one and two, there's another thing you have to get from there, it's over and over, God saw and said, God saw and said it was good, God saw and said it was good. So God sees, God sees. You can't hide, a tree is not gonna hide you from God. God sees. God sees what you do with your girlfriend in her apartment. God sees what you do in the corner office. There's no hiding from God. All things, the Bible says, are naked and open before him whom we deal with. So they try to hide. They try to get away from the gaze of God. Ever bust your kids when they're little? What do they do? Wouldn't they kind of run off into a corner or try to hide behind the couch or they won't look at you in the eye, they'll just look down? Man, it's that same kind of feeling like, I don't want their gaze on me. Please don't look at me. Please don't know me this way. So they're doing the same thing. They're trying to get away from the gaze of God. So God says to Adam, hey, bro, what's up? And what does Adam do? Does he confess his sins and fall down and repent right here and right now? No, no, he doesn't. So remember Adam, the last time we heard from Adam was at the end of chapter two, where he is the first songwriter and he writes a song about his bride, Eve, right? Poetry, beautiful. She is mine. I'm giving myself to her. I'm leaving everything else for her, <clears throat> right? Just brilliant and beautiful. Now what does he do? Sin has already warped his heart in such a way that brilliantly in one sentence, Adam both blames his wife and God for his sin. I mean, if it wasn't so tragic, it'd be hilarious, right? It's the woman you gave me. Blame. And every man since Adam so easily falls into this little trap right here. I've had men that I've been counseling in marriage and they've said, Matt, before I got married, I wasn't this way. Really? I said, no way, man. Marriage is just an amplifier. Bro, that was always in you. You just had it cranked up and it was exposed now. Are you gonna confess and repent? That's the question. We blame so easily. I knew I shouldn't have listened to you. 
Woman, if I hadn't listened to you, we would not be in this mess right now. How many men have said that to their wives? Just, it's so easy now to blame, blame. They're an easy target. They're a soft target for men. If you hadn't left the truck in reverse, I would have never ran through the garage door. Yeah, I'm serious. They're an easy, soft target for men. So we end up blaming them for all of our problems. So the delight of chapter two turns into the disaster of chapter three. It's so important for men to be reminded of these tendencies in us, confessing them, repenting of them. Like we should, all of us should be reading Ephesians chapter five at least once a week. This is how God says to treat his girls. This is how God says to treat his girls. Okay, God help me this day to treat my wife the way I'm supposed to treat her. If not, we'll fall into the Adam trap real quick. So Adam blames God and blames his wife. And then God says to Eve, what's up? And so who's left to blame? There's only one other thing around. He did it, the serpent. The devil made me do it. It's the first instance of that. It's the serpent, right? So, so the serpent held you down and forced the apple into your mouth? Is that what happened? Just you see this thing get just twisted. It's twisted. The New Testament comments on this story. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, it says this, that Eve was deceived, but Adam knew. So Eve's sin was she was deceived. She was tricked, if you would. Adam doesn't have that excuse. He knew full well what he was doing. And that's why the Bible really says from this point on, it's Adam's sin. She was deceived. She got twisted up, tangled up by this crafty serpent. But Adam full well knew what he was doing when he ate of that fruit. So the question is, why would Adam do that? I'll be super blunt with you. You've got the serpent deceives Eve. She eats. Adam watches this. She hands it to Adam. Adam eats, knowing full well, you know why? Because a man will follow a naked woman anywhere. <laughs> I'm dead serious. That's what happened. He just said, no, I'm choosing her over God. I'm choosing her over God. And things get really bad. I've said this a million times. Wives make great, great wives. They make terrible gods. We'll see all the tyranny that comes out of this, the hardship that comes out of this. Because Adam chose his wife over God. Be careful of that. Be careful. So when you look at this story and the twists and the blame and the problems, I have a question for the men and for the women. Men, are we good influences on the women around us? Are we good influences on the women around us? Do we treat, the New Testament says, I'm to look at the women around me like moms and sisters. Do we do that? Are we good influences or do we objectify and try to control and try to manipulate? Are we good influences on the women around us? Do we use our power and our abilities and our talents to be positive for the women around us? Same question for the ladies. Are you a good influence to use your power and your influence and your beauty as a positive influence for the men around you? Because that's what church is supposed to be. We use these gifts and these things that God has given to us as positive influences for those of both genders around us. That's what we should be. It's a question to consider. Am I a good influence on the men, on the women around me? Because these, this right here isn't, this is broken. Blame, shifting, gross, bad. So now God starts in again. Here's the curse. Then Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Uh, what you're gonna see from here point, this point forward is there's actually two lines that emerge. And these two lines, Jesus would say, John chapter eight, you are the sons of your father, Satan. That there is actually a bad line. Genesis six 
really amplifies that bad line. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken, for you are of dust, and to dust you shall return. The curse. God addresses the serpent, does not ask the serpent a question, does not actually allow the serpent to talk. Why is that? Because the serpent doesn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> so bad just so easy. It's like a softball, just waiting. I got to take a swing at that. No, God knew who he was. I don't need to hear from you. I know who you are. I'm not letting you talk. There are some people you should not let talk. No, don't talk. Uh-uh. We already know what he was going to say. Undermining, twisting, manipulating. God does not let him speak. There are some people you should say, I don't want to hear from you. No, no, don't talk. So God doesn't even let him talk. And God essentially says this to him. He now begins to curse them. The serpent gets cursed. The ground gets cursed. The man and the woman don't get cursed. They are told, here's the consequences of your action. They're not cursed though. Here's the consequences, okay? So the serpent, God says this, your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. And until you're done, until your head is crushed, you're gonna eat dirt. That's the curse for the serpent. Your days are numbered. You're going to be crushed. And the crushing is going to come from the seed of the woman. This is kind of profound because if you read ancients, the ancients people did not believe the woman had a seed. They believed this, that a man had a seed and the woman was the incubator for the seed. And so she was just kind of like this, you know, this, this petri dish that allowed your baby to grow. But women didn't have seeds. Like they didn't know about zygots and meiosis and all this stuff. Because really it's a fascinating insight here. The seed of the woman is going to crush this serpent's head. All right, we know this is Jesus, but note this verse. It's Romans 16, 20. This is after the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. The battle that crushes a serpent's head Romans 16, 20 says this, God will crush Satan's head under your foot. Who's Paul writing to in Romans? A church. What was Paul saying there? You guys are to finish the job. So I believe in what's called inaugurated eschatology. That God, Jesus, God inaugurates things. What happened on Calvary was the inauguration of the new kingdom the pushing back of darkness, the bringing in the renewal of all things, it inaugurated that, it set it into motion. And then you and I now, we get to participate in the completion of that. So you and I, by how we live today, we can and we do get to crush Satan in a certain way. When I live a life of justice, I'm crushing the serpent. When I live a life of righteousness, demonstrating life how it's supposed to be lived, an outpost of heaven, when I do that, I'm crushing the serpent's head in a way. When I do Romans 12, 19, that says, don't be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. When I do that, I am crushing the serpent's head. When I do Hebrews 2, 9 and 10, that says, when we hate wickedness and love righteousness, something brilliant happens. That's how we do it. You and I today can crush the serpent in Grant's pass. We start living like we're supposed to. Romans 16, 20. I love that verse. I wanna live that verse. I think one of the ways that the church is slipping a little bit right now is when it comes to sin. We are on this road where the word sin is rarely used. And when we use sin, you know what it's typically used for? Food, right? That chocolate eclair is 
sinful, right? But real sin now is just kind of, we, we use new terms for it. It's not adultery, it's an affair. It's so much softer to say an affair than adultery. I think it's sad. We need to be people that hate sin because when we do, we crush the serpent. We should hate it. I've been reading some old sermons and these preachers from yesteryear, 100 years, 150 years ago, they would sit in the pulpit and they would confess the sins of their congregation. And then they would call and say to the entire congregation, get up here and start repenting your, from your sins. And the place would empty, just people coming forward, weeping and crying and confessing their sins. Where does it happen today? Oh, man, is that biblical? Well, let me read for you James chapter four. Verse eight, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. That's the way it's supposed to be. That crushes Satan right there. When sin becomes exceedingly sinful, this is sin and I can't stand it. You know what I hear now coming from pulpits? I sinned because they got busted in their sin, but God's doing great things with my sin. I can't stand that. It grieves my heart. You should say, I sinned and I'm gonna weep and howl and beat my breast because it's so bad. Not God's gonna do better things with me. Weep and howl about it. I hate it. I hate that I could be that kind of person. I don't wanna be, man, that's the way it should happen. That beats back and crushes the enemy. Sin's gotta be sinful. Then the woman is talked to and she is told essentially, having children is going to be hard. Amen? My wife, five kids, all natural. It's unbelievable. When Carissa, my first was born, and we went to the hospital and the nurse asked, you want an epidural? And she said, no. I was like, yeah, you go girl. Woohoo!" And then I watched Carissa be born. And then when Isabella, my second was born, we we're taking her to the hospital. We go to the hospital and the nurse says, do you want an epidural? And my wife says, no, I don't want the epidural. I said, I will take it. Give it to me. This is brutal. Like I can't take it. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Do you know that humans are the only mammals that have excruciating pain in childbirth. No other mammal has it. It's fascinating to me. This is going to be multiplied. It's going to be hard. Family and kids are going to be tough. Read your Bible. There is no functioning family in the Bible. There's not one. I don't know if they forgot to read Focus on the Family or what, but there's not a functioning family in here. They're broken and jacked up. Brothers killing brothers, that's stage one. Selling each other into slavery, fighting each other, lying to each other, right? That's just Genesis. It's unbelievable. It gets jacked up quick. This thing is going to be hard. It is the number one thing that pastors deal with. What was supposed to be, be fruitful and multiply in the garden of delight became be fighting and messy down in Murphy. That's the way it is now. Very hard, very hard. And it's a bummer, total bummer. And there's this little phrase that says, and your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. What in the world does that mean? Jewish commentaries, which I have one I really love, he quotes Song of Solomon, because in Song of Solomon, chapter seven, verse 10, it speaks of desire, same word, and the desire there is sexual. So many Jewish commentaries, they say that this, your desire shall be for your husband is a sexual desire. Now, if that was true, most men would say, God, please curse my wife with that, right? <laughs> it's not what it is. The same word is used in chapter four. We'll get there. 
In chapter four, it's about sin crouching at the door of Cain. And he is told, listen, you've got to control that thing or it's gonna destroy you. The control here is before it was supposed to be this cooperation, this partnership, this beautiful thing, chapter two. Now it's competition. It was supposed to be beautiful and cooperation. Now it's competition. And on top of that, I'd say it also means this, that the curse of work does something to the man's heart. That the woman has this desire for her husband to kind of be around and like, hey, let's drink tea together. Let's have long talks and let's go for walks and all this stuff. And, and, And the man is like, man, I did this for five minutes. I gotta get back to work. I gotta beat back the thistles and the briars. I can't sit around here like this all the time. There's gonna be this tension because of the two curses working against each other. And it's gonna make marriage that much more difficult. So marriage now at its worst, woman becomes the nemesis for the man and the man becomes a tyrant to the woman. It's marriage at its worst. And I see marriages like that all the time, all the time. So what do you do about it? I think the keys to marriage are repentance and forgiveness. I think in the first year of marriage, there should be like 365 times of repentance and confession that happen. Man, this is not who I'm supposed to be. This is not what you need. Forgive me for that. Help me, pray for me, change me. I don't wanna be that way. Because marriage is not about our happiness, it's about our holiness. And when you say marriage is to make me and conform me and change me and structure me better, if you allow your spouse to do that for you, man, beautiful, incredible things happen. But when you don't, when you fight each other and you gotta be right and oh my goodness, nemesis and tyrants, then it gets really hard. So this is the curse. Now the man, final one, The ground is cursed. What was Adam's job? He's a gardener. Guess what gardeners do a lot of? They work with dirt. So what's being said here is the place of your work, before it was this bounty where I already planted all the trees for you that are all producing, they're doing awesome, they're pruned, they're they're incredible. Now it's gonna be different. Now you're gonna toil and you're gonna sweat and thorns and thistles are gonna come out of the ground. The earth now is going to be dangerous. Beautiful, but dangerous. Isn't earth beautiful, but dangerous? I was down, went snowboarding at Mount Shasta and it was this beautiful day. And we're looking at Mount Shasta, just brilliantly beautiful. And then you see this fissure starting, this massive avalanche is gonna happen up there because of all the snow. Man, it's beautiful, but you're below that avalanche. You're done. It's dangerous at the same time. Like animals are beautiful. Lions are beautiful. Are they dangerous? Go pet one. Right? So there's this tension now. Hey, there's the, it's thorns and thistles, what was supposed to be uh, working with you. Earth was to work with us. Now it works against us. It battles against us all the time. So work becomes a war, and in the end, it murders us. That's what was just said. Finally, it's going to win, and it will kill you. You're going to go back to dust. It's a long fight with gravity, and then gravity wins and you end up under the very thing you're trying to control. So nature was supposed to be controlled by man. We were to rule over it, Genesis 1, 28. Now nature is actually gonna rule over us and eventually it will take us and win. That's the curse. Hmm. Can't you feel this, men? Like work does that, doesn't it? Like when you finally think you've beat back the thistles and the briars and you're, you're, you're finally kind of got where you want to be as a, a man or established in your business or whatever it is, all of a sudden thorns and thistles seem to grow up. Bro, you got dry rot all over your house, 50 grand. What? I can't afford that? Oh no. Thorns and thistles. Hey man, got to call you into the office. You know, we got to let you go. Economy's changed. Your position isn't necessary anymore. You gotta go back to, you gotta find some new skill because your skills are outdated, man. You gotta let you go. Man, I got in this business deal with a great partner and then, then the partner betrays you and steals from you and takes away from you. You get sued, whatever it is, right? Can't you feel that? It, it, it becomes like almost a thing, I think in a lot of men where we're almost waiting for the next blow from the curse. And so it makes men very insecure and kind of anxious in a kind of way. When's the curse gonna come? When's the next briar gonna come? When's the next thistle gonna attack me? That's the curse. It's there warring against us. That work becomes this war that eventually you lose and it kills you. <laughs> How's that for a curse? And so then it ends 
The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living things. And Yahweh God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. What garments are they? Nobody knows. The Jewish commentary I have says it was the skin from the snake. I thought that's cool. <laughs> Rattleskin garments. How awesome is that? Uh, I think it's an animal of some sort. And this is the first sacrifice that covers them. Then Yahweh God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. East in the Bible is always the bad direction. So they go the bad direction, east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now they're cast out of the garden. Is this punitive? Get out of the garden because God's mad at you and he's gonna punish you. Is it punitive? No, the reason is given. I don't want them to eat of the tree of life and become eternal zombies. I have a better plan. What's his better plan? Read Revelation 21 and 22. That's the better plan. I'm gonna create a garden city where you get back to the way you're supposed to live and I'm gonna plant in that garden city the tree of life where now you can eat of it and be healed. That's my plan. And so I don't want Adam and Eve to be these zombies eternally living in this really fallen, terrible situation. It's not punitive. It's protective. I'm protecting you from yourself, from eating this fruit and living a disastrous existence. That's why. So this brings up the big question, and I'll conclude pretty much here, of evil. We've just seen evil be introduced. Where did evil come from? Did God create evil? It's option one. Some theological systems would say, yeah, God created evil. He created everything. Or another system is this. It was the divine oops. That's Harold Kushner, if you don't know him. He wrote the book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? He wrote that book after watching his son die from progeria, which is a disease where you age super quick. So his son at 10 years of age was actually like an 80-year-old man. So super hard to watch. So he said, it's a divine oops. Oh no. God says, oh man, that's terrible. What am I gonna do about this? What is it? Is it the morally significant decisions of God's creation that introduce evil? Is it the decision here that Adam and Eve make to say to God, we're not gonna trust you, we're gonna trust someone else? Is that what creates evil? That's my camp. That evil was introduced because of the morally significant decision, probably by the serpent at some earlier time, and now introduced into the audits, the earth, by Adam and Eve making the same decision to go against God. That's where evil comes from. That evil in the New Testament, if you read it, it's a movement of your heart, not the actions on the outside. It's, it's the heart already has made that action. It's, it's created the evil right here, and then the evil comes out out of the abundance of the heart. These things come out. That that's, this is where evil comes from. So you have the Imago Dei, this beautiful creation of God. Now it's cracked and fractured. So I call us now, we're glorious ruins. That's what humans are. We're glorious ruins. Ever been to a really, really dynamic ruin? Charity and I were in Israel. We probably went to a hundred different places during those three weeks of these incredible ruins. And you can kind of imagine like, man, this would have been glorious at some, uh, and even the ruin is still glorious. There's, a, there's an echo, there's a ah, almost of it. That's what humans are now. We're glorious ruins. And one day the Bible says, you'll be remade into the way you're supposed to be. And that is our hope. Genesis three gives us the curse and the bad news. The rest of the Bible gives us our hope that God begins to work and do and Eve, Eve was deceived, and here's how. I'll finish on this. There's a ton I could do, I don't, want, I don't have the time. Eve was deceived by this. She was told by the serpent, listen, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. 
What was Eve already? The Imago Dei. What is that? The image of God. She already was as much like God as she could possibly be. So the serpent tempted her with something that she already was, something she already had. How fascinating is that to me? How often am I tempted by the serpent to get something more of what I already have enough of? When you've got more of something you already have enough of, has that ever brought you lasting joy? I doubt it. I really, really doubt it. God had already said, you're my image bearer. You are the best representation on earth of me. And then the serpent comes and says, hey, you can have more of what you already have enough of. He always does that. He substitutes money for meaning. He substitutes uh, stuff for substance. The way we battle back is super simple. We constantly are reminded God is good and God is generous. And we remind ourselves of that, Romans chapter one, by gratitude, by continually giving thanks. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for eternal life. Thank you for salvation. Thank you that one day I will be, this glorious ruin will be remade in your image, that when I see you, I will be like you. Finally, the glorious ruin will be remade. Thank you that you're preparing a place for me. Thank you. If you have gratitude, it is the greatest, greatest, greatest armor against the lie of the enemy, which says you need more of what you already have enough of. So Jesus, may we be grateful people. May we continually remind each other that you are good and you are generous. May we continually remind each other that your goal for us is to create a beautiful place where we can flourish and that our needs, you see them before we even ask. And may we trust you that much more, Lord. May our gratitude and may our trust of you be a protection for us, Lord, tomorrow and Friday and Saturday and Sunday against the crafty lies of the serpent. So go with us. Remind us of your goodness. Remind us of your grace. May we never understate your grace and overstate your rules, Lord. Because that's where we begin to doubt your goodness and your graciousness. So this day, fill us with spirits of gratitude, I pray. Go with us, Lord. May we, this evening, tomorrow morning, may you be using us to crush Satan in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in Grants Pass, in Josephine County, in Oregon, Lord. May you be using us to beat back the darkness, I pray. And may we see the glorious dawning of your light and your goodness and your gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.